Hello, and uh, Happy New Year, I guess. When is the scientifically uh, verified date that it's too late to say Happy New Year? I think it. Um, I think it's today. Okay, yeah. good, good. Well, we just made it just in the nick of time. Welcome to 2019 on Lost in Science. Woo! I should We're have back! Like party poppers We're and back. things. We're back. My name is Stu, and this is half an hour on your radio where me and the Lost in Science crew will talk about science. The Lost in Science team is myself, Stu, and Chris. Hello, I'm Chris. And Claire. Hello, I'm Claire. So if you have listened to the show before, uh, welcome back. And if you haven't listened, welcome. To the show. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So yeah, uh, on the show this week, well... First of all, this year is a big year for science. Uh, UNESCO has declared it the year of the periodic table. That is that is a special science year. That is very sciencey. Um, it's about time, right? Well, it's 150 years in the making. Yeah. Um, it's about time. None of those years have been the International Year of the Periodic Table n- until 2019. That's right. And um, yeah, so I'm going to be talking a little bit about the periodic table and why it's so cool uh, a bit later <laughs> in the show. Chris, what are you going to inform us and dazzle us with? Well, I am starting the year with, with an interview. I am speaking today to uh, Dr. Mark Edmonds from Monash University. He is leading a team that, well, They've made this, they're using this new material called a topological insulator, which won the Nobel Prize a couple of years ago for physics. And they're using this to make a new form of electronics. So hopefully will be something that will get us past some of the limits, like with Moore's law and this sort of stuff, and give us some more high energy efficient um, computing. Because electronics is using a huge amount of energy today, and we're using more and more of it. So yeah, we need to find new technologies to, to break through kind of the, the limits of that physics is imposing on us. It's true. I do need my phone to be able to do more stuff. It's not just about your phone being able to do more stuff, do you? Okay, that's great. It's about the energy you're burning for your phone to do more well, stuff. Well, that, that's important too. Yeah. And Claire, what are you going to enlighten us with? Well, you know, it's the start of a year. Um, everyone's got a lot of news resolutions. Some of them are around, you know, um, being better for the environment, doing more things for the environment. Some of them are around eating better. Um but now scientists around the world have come together to put out a report for how the world as a whole can come together and, um, and eat a sustainable and healthy diet and what that looks like at all levels from government policy to agricultural systems to food waste and all that sort of thing, um, what that means for us in the West moving forward. So I'm going to talk a little bit about that report. Did you bring some food in for us? No, because actually, um, it's <laughs> the Western diet is um, needs to be changed. Oh. So I'm not going to bring in any 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 of our current food, but I'm going to tell oh, you okay, okay. what you should be um, probably we are allowed eating to eat, more. Well, you are allowed to eat. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you need to be healthy. You need to be eating the right sorts of things. Okay, good. Um, but what those things are, yeah, and I will talk about. Yeah, so Claire, you can fill us in on on how. Uh, we should improve our diets for the new year and for the future. Uh, more of that later in the show, so stay tuned.
end of January this year, 2019, the United Nations Educational, Scientific and Cultural Organization, aka UNESCO, uh, announced officially the International Year of the Periodic Table, or IYPT, which is <laughs> terrible and no one's ever going to no say one's, no that. No that's that, that ain't catching on in no. one year. Presumably people knew it was coming. Right? They, they don't, don't they give some warning so that like chemists can... can Prepare and this sort of thing. Yeah, no, it, it's it's been coming for a while. What? Ce- okay. Celebrate, yeah. celebrate. Oh yeah, no, but there's you know there's official launch. Oh, official launch down, okay. at the, down at the UNESCO HQ. Yeah. Um. So most and people and in chemistry labs around the world, sure. Well, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Raise your beaker high. <laughs> most careful. What's in that? Careful. <laughs> yeah. Don't look. Health and safety. No drinking says, in don't, the lab. Yeah. <laughs> don't raise your beaker high. Okay. Leave it on the bench unless you really have to move it. And yeah. if you do have to move it, use both hands yeah. and make sure you're wearing gloves. Keep it at a safe level at all times. That's right. Um, so most people who have ever been in a science classroom will know the periodic table by sight, even if they don't remember the details of what's on it. Mm. You'll still be able to go, oh, that's a periodic table. I remember that from science class. Um, the shape is iconic and it's been of huge help to scientists in many fields since it was standardised and has looked very similar for over a century. But... I did some background reading on this, and its familiar shape was by no means a certainty. So um, when Dmitry Ivanovich Mendeleev first discovered his periodic system for categorizing the chemical elements, he was not the first person to have tried to organize the different chemicals into a pattern. So if you go back to 1803, uh, John Dalton tried to categorize the elements, and he made a table of known elements with invented symbols, mm-hmm. which he had intended to be adopted as a means of shorthand for quickly writing down different uh, atoms and different elements. I'm guessing in 1803, though, there were a lot fewer elements. Uh, uh, there weren't. There were a lot fewer known elements. Okay. Yeah. And he didn't, oh, know, yeah, yeah, yeah. he didn't know very many of them. Lol, Chris. Yeah. <laughs> he also... He also um, yeah, they're all in black and white, too. Uh, the, he also invented this notation system which was kind of like these runes that he'd come up with um, mm. to match each element but they weren't very intuitive in any way so um, and not they didn't appear on a typewriter no no not at all he uh, actually I don't even know if typewriters existed no. in 1803 to be honest um, he only included 36 elements in his last attempt in 1827 so he kept at it he was mm. still trying to to get this to catch on uh, and his symbolic notation system was outmoded by a Swedish chemist's suggestion of, hey, maybe we use an alphabet-based code for uh, for the elements. So we would have a different alphabetic <laughs> and code. And that was for groundbreaking. Well, yeah, it sort of caught on because everyone knew the <laughs> alphabet already. Yeah, and um, as long as we don't have to use the same letters that the word that the letters element starts with, so we can use AU for gold and AG for silver and K for for potassium. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that'll confuse people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you've just got to learn Greek and Latin as yeah. well, that's, and German. That's the drawback. Um, so John Newlands also recognised a repeating pattern in elements, which he thought was based on their atomic weight, and he called it the law of octaves. Um, and the number eight was very popular in science circles for a really long time. Just seemed to be this sort of, that seemed to be a, a number that stuck in people's heads. I think didn't Newton was a bit obsessed with the... Yeah, well, he thought that it had to be like seven colours in the rainbow to match the seven notes of the, the scale and right and that sort of thing. Um, but yeah, numbers was a, was a, you know, it was 
definite that he could see a repeating pattern, and he published this in 1864. But there was also different arrangements. People laid out the uh, elements in different ways. So there was a spiral arrangement or several different spiral arrangements with uh, hydrogen at the center and then heavier elements radiating out from the axis meeting up on um, spokes where their properties align. So there's all these different ways of representing the, um, the elements that were known. That sounds um, cool. There's really cool stuff. If you look up alternative periodic tables of elements, you'll find all these sorts of, you know, this 3D models and all sorts of things. Um, but Mendeleev, who uh, became a chemistry professor after finding he had no decent chemistry textbooks, um, just sat down and wrote his own, which then got translated into multiple languages and republished in eight different editions. Um, he sat down at his desk in 1869 with an element on each card, on on uh, different cards that he'd made, so one element per card, and he started laying them out. And he noticed that the properties lined up when the cards were placed in a certain number of columns and rows. And basically, that's the beginnings of the periodic table. But what he did figure out, um, his next assumption was what really put the periodic table on the poster board in the science lab. He realized that he probably didn't know all of the existing elements. So uh, in all probability, he figured that nobody at the time knew all of the existing elements. So rather than try and make everything fit into a system that was incomplete, he used his incomplete data set and left gaps in the table. So that's a pretty amazing leap of logic that he had. Um, but the gaps themselves allowed for new elements to be slotted in as they were isolated. So chemists were working on isolating these elements, and as they were isolated, they went, oh, Look, that one slots right in there. And even more surprisingly, it allowed chemists to predict the properties of these unknown atoms. So they could actually go looking for something that had chemical properties of a certain type, and they would go, oh, that's the missing element that we're looking for in this periodic table. It's a great chemistry whodunit or something. Yeah, it's know. like a mystery. Murder, murder mystery. Um, so later work in quantum mechanics helped explain why atoms had similar properties based on the arrangement of electrons in the outer shell of each atom. And this led to a better understanding of chemistry in general. Um, so the interpretation that we use now is influenced by a chemist, uh, by a physicist rather, named Charles Janet, um, who tweaked the table into the basic form we're familiar with today. Mendeleev basically just typed out some stuff on a bit of paper um, or printed out some, some the names of the elements on a piece of paper, and it was actually sideways from what we are used to seeing it now. Um, he had okay. hydrogen was on the far left on the side of the table, and the tables went the other way, so got turned around. Um, but Charles Janet uh, used the the periodic table to predict things like he even had the idea of dark matter from looking at the way atoms interacted with each other. And he also figured out that you could probably uh, fuse atoms together um, as nuclear fusion based on looking at the how, how the periodic table progressed from a single hydrogen atom to bigger and bigger atoms. How do you get dark matter from it? I don't know. Okay. I haven't read his work personally, but this is what he's uh, credited with coming up with. I'm sure it's different to what the dark matter is now. Because well, I guess the periodic table, I guess it's funny shape. It's not like a big rectangle. It's got all those kind of bits sticking off the side. Out. Maybe between those bits, that's where the dark matter lives. Well, it, it <laughs> kind of probably is. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. Um, but anyway, Charles Janet 
sort of influence the shape of the of the periodic table that we know today. So it's difficult to imagine any of the modern sciences, uh, really, um, you know, biology, chemistry, microbiology, I mean, molecular biology, even, um, and all, you know, physics and, and every science, uh, every science based on the physical universe relies on understanding how atoms interact. Um, it's so much easier to grasp, thanks to the periodic table. If you think of even, you know, 200 years ago, people were not really grasping how many different mm. uh, kinds of atom existed. So it was very hard to understand how the world worked if you didn't know what it was made of in the first place. Um, and thanks to Mendeleev's work, we can do that and also all the work that's built on top of it. The periodic table still has empty slots after all of these years. Um, we're up to 118 elements that have been actually identified and slotted into place. But back in the 1960s, a comedian slash science fan called Tom Lehrer wrote a song in which he recited all of the known uh, elements at the time. Um, and it's quite a famous song. It's called the Element Song or the Periodic Table Song. Um, but I found a recording of someone who's probably better known for uh, alchemy rather than chemistry. Um, I found a clip of Daniel Radcliffe, a.k.a. Harry Potter, reciting the Element Song on, uh, on a TV show. So I'm going to play that for you right now. There's antimony, arsenic, aluminum, selenium, and hydrogen, and oxygen, and nitrogen, and uranium, and nickel, neodymium, neptunium, germanium, and iron, and americium, ruthenium, uranium, europium, zirconium, ruthenium, vanadium, and anthium, and osmium, and acetine, and radium, and golden protactinium, and indium, and gallium, and iodine, thorium, and thulium, and thallium. There's yttrium, and terbium, actinium, rubidium, and boron, gallium, and opium, and sulfur, and silicon, silver, and barium, bismuth, bromine, lithium, beryllium, and barium. And let's start the next verse. There's volume in here. There's holmium and helium and aphium and erbium, phosphorus and francine and fluorine and terbium, and manganese and mercury and of magnesium, dysprosium and scandium and cerium and cesium. There's lead, praseodymium, platinum, plutonium, palladium, promethium, potassium, polonium, and tantalum, technetium, titanium, tellurium, and cadmium, potassium, chromium, mercurium. There's sulfur, californium, and fermium, bacillium, and also mendelevium, arsenium, nobelium, and argon, radon, neon, and argon. Hold on, quiet. Quiet. There's sulfur, californium, and fermium, bacillium, and also mendelevium, arsenium, nobelium, and argon, radon, neon, krypton, xenon, zinc, and rhodium, and chlorine, carbon. Cobble, copper, tungsten, tin, and sodium. Now, Whoa! <laughs> and so, in honor of the International Year of the Periodic Table, or EYPT, we are going to try and do our. We've, we've done this series before, we've called it In Our Element, where we talk about individual atoms and what their properties are, and you know, obviously, everything in the universe that we know of is made of atoms, so it covers a large amount of ground. But this year we're gonna try and do more frequently uh, in our element and hopefully cover as many elements as we can. We're not gonna get anywhere near the full periodic table because obviously there's too many elements. But we'll try and do one every week or every couple of weeks, potentially. Periodically. Periodically. And for the ones that we don't do, we'll just, um, we'll just do a, some sort of song at the end of the year to list them off as well. Yeah, I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll task you with that, Claire. Great, thanks.
listening to Lost in Science. My name is Chris. Now, as the world is becoming more and more dependent on electronics, we're also reaching the limits of what conventional technology can achieve. And so it becomes important to find new kinds of electronic components to push through those limits. Recently, a team at Monash University in Melbourne has successfully shown that a strange type of material called a topological insulator could be used as a switch or transistor. Now, today I am speaking to team leader Dr. Mark Edmonds to find out what this is all about. Welcome to Lost in Science, Mark. Thank you, Chris. Good now, to be here. Now, I mentioned that this is about breaking the limits of our current technology. What kind of limits are we talking about? What are we facing here? Uh, we're facing issues with essentially what's known as Moore's Law. So in 1965, the founder of Intel or the co-founder of Intel made this prediction based on the, the trends in the data in silicon uh, manufacturing that the number of components on an integrated circuit would actually double about every 18 months. And this is held true f basically till now. But it's coming to an end, and the reason for that is the components are getting so small that they can't be really scaled down any further without uh, breaking sort of some hard limits of physics and also without having exponential increases in cost, which are just unmanageable in the industry. So that's, I guess, what we're looking towards. We're, we're trying to find new technologies that will overcome this, this issue. Okay, so when we're talking about treating electronics, we're talking about... The, the components that are in circuits we put onto um, silicon chips, mm -hmm. and these include transistors, which is the kind of thing that you're working on. Um, can you just explain to us, I guess, what a transistor is uh, and why it's an important part of a computer? Sure. So a transistor is essentially a, a very basic switch. Um, you can think about it in binary terms, one and zero, on and off. And the way a transistor works is it uses a material uh, known as a semiconductor, which is sort of in between a metal and an insulator. So under the right conditions, it will conduct, and under the, uh, another condition, it'll actually be insulating. So with an electric field that can be applied, you can actually switch it on and off. And, and, and that's essentially the basis of your integrated chip. It's made up of billions of these little transistors that essentially are either on or off state. And by combining those, uh, you can have computing. Okay, so the switching is very important there. Now, you're trying to make a switch or transistor using topological insulators. Look, I'm not going to let you go here. Can you explain how this works? Like, what is a topological insulator and how can it be used to make a switch? Okay, so, so topological insulators are, are a new sort of material class. As I mentioned, this, sort of we know that there are three material classes, a metal, an insulator, and a semiconductor. Um, a topological insulator was proposed fairly recently as this wacky sort of idea that a material might be insulating in its bulk, but conductive on its surface. So you can think about this in terms of, say, a chocolate bar. It's wrapped in, in foil, and obviously the foil is conducting, but the chocolate underneath is insulating. Okay. So, but that's obviously in the case, then the, um, the, the chocolate and the foil are two separate materials, but you're talking about the one material that's kind of got its own built-in wrapper. Is that what yeah. that is? Yeah. So, I mean, if you, if you coated the chocolate in gold, for example, then it would be conducting on its surface. Okay. Yeah. So the, and the topological then, I guess the name refers to the shape as you said, like part of it, it does one thing and part of it does another thing. Is that exactly. right? Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So what we're talking about 
in terms of the chocolate analogy, is for a three-dimensional material. What we're really working on is actually a material in two dimensions, so sort of thinking about just a single layer of of atoms or a few layers of atoms. Um, And in that case, a topological insulator is actually uh, the edges of the material are conducting. So the interior is insulating. Okay. And when we say topological, what we mean is along those edges, it's an extremely good conductor. So are you, are you familiar with a superconductor? Yeah, that's a um, so superconductor is a conducting material that basically has zero resistance. Is that right? Exactly. So a topological insulator along these edges almost behaves like a superconductor. Not quite, but it's a good analogy to use. Essentially, what will happen is current will flow along these edges without any sort of interactions with impurities that might be in the material. So there's actually no heat lost when an electron bounces around going from from one end of the material to the other. Okay, now I imagine that's very important when we're looking at shrinking components down to put them onto chips, then um, heat loss is going to cause more energy use and things to heat up and that kind of stuff. Exactly. Yeah, so I mean... The idea is is if you can, and, and the predictions are, say, maybe uh, you can reduce the amount of energy consumed by 50% using a topological insulator. If there are a billion transistors on a single chip and there are billions of computers and phones in the world, that's a huge amount of energy that's actually going to be saved by um, introducing that into the uh, electronics world. Do you know how much energy electronics today are using? Yeah, we're obsessed with energy uh, in, in the modern world. It's, it's a about 10% of global energy consumption right. is consumed by computing. And that's actually doubling about every decade. Oh, wow. Okay, I guess yeah. we, yeah, when we think of like the big server farms that organizations like Google might have and the yeah. amount of data we're creating is definitely going to get increase and increase. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I read an article in The Age, actually, that was recently published. The data centers in Australia use up more energy than Woolworths and Coles supermarkets combined oh, in wow. Australia. And that's... Uh, I read a statistic. It was their power bill is two hundred and fifty million dollars a year. So, okay. so it's it's a lot. But you don't think about computing being this big amount of global emissions. Okay. So, so how did you make this this device or this kind of proto switch that you created? So, so maybe I'll I'll just explain uh, one thing further if it's okay. okay. Sure, yeah. Um, so it's actually very difficult to to turn off a topological insulator by itself because it's always conducting along these edges or along this surface. So what we had to do was find a material predicted to to have properties that could be tuned with an electric field. So what we wanted is an an electric field would actually transition this material from a topological insulator into a conventional insulator such as glass. So then you can have this on-off switch just like a normal transistor, but when in the on state, it will use far less energy. Okay. So how we make this is we, we do everything in, in, in vacuum conditions equivalent essentially to space. So we're under very clean conditions where we have very few impurities and we can grow the cleanest material. And what we do is we actually evaporate sodium atoms and bismuth atoms simultaneously onto a substrate and we grow them sort of atom by atom or layer by layer as essentially a single crystal. And, and the material that we were growing is known as sodium bismuthide. Okay. 
So you have shown that you can control it as an, with an electric field, whether it's insulating or not. Mm. What's the next step for the research? Uh, so the next step is is to actually make a, a working transistor. Uh, we've, we've essentially demonstrated that we can switch this material by, by studying its electronic properties. But what we want to do is actually make one of these uh, transistors and show it can, when we flow current through, it will actually uh, turn off and on. We're not there yet. It's a long process. Uh, as you know, in science, things can take time and with incremental developments. But we're doing some transport measurements now and seeing very promising results. Brilliant. Well, um, I hope that it works out and that in the future we all have like topological computers in our pockets. I hope so too. Brilliant. Well, thanks for coming in, Mark. Yeah. I we, we have a patent on this, so I, I definitely hope so. because Oh, yeah. You're yeah. set to make a lot from that. Okay, well, yeah. good luck with that. Yes. Thank you. Uh, that was Dr. Mark Edmonds from Monash University talking about a new achievement in topological switching. Across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Lost in Science. So it's a new year. That means it's a new you, right? Yeah. <laughs> I'm the same old me. He looks He looks as though I can vouch for that. Yeah. <laughs> Well, um, in a lot of people's lives, the new year is um, plagued with resolutions that they can't keep. I, for one, am, you know, someone that suffers from that, make resolutions, don't keep them. Yeah, look, I, I, um, Everything's I, gone I, by the wayside. I don't get involved with this at the end of the year. I make resolutions I don't keep all year round. <laughs> but a lot of people's resolutions are that they don't keep. Um, are, you know, fairly ambiguous things like eat better or do more to help the environment. Um, but according to a new report from the EAT Lancet Commission or Eat Lancet Commission, as um, it will now be referred to, um, we as a global community should be adopting a diet that addresses both the environment and and sustainability, and also how to keep ourselves healthy. So the Lancet is like, um, obviously, the preeminent medical journal getting around. So this commission is based on all this sort of science, these scientific studies. So the fact that it's a medical journal, I guess, means that it's good for your health as well as good for the planet's health. Yeah. Yes, indeed. So they're trying um, to they're trying to combine environmental science and medical science and make a happy diet for people and the planet. Yeah, I mean it makes a lot of sense if you think about land use. Our food is one of the most impactful things that people do is farming and and harvesting food. Totally, and and it's an extremely significant report because to date um, there hasn't been um, a globally like globally agreed scientific targets for the take into account things like healthy diets, but also sustainable food production at all sorts of levels, you know, from agriculture to policy and all that sort of stuff, um, which means there's no large scale and coordinated effort to change global food systems um, to increase um, or to decrease carbon emissions or um, increase land use for like biodiversity or anything like that. Um, so this Eat Lancet Commission convened 37 leading scientists from 16 different countries um, and, as you say, across 
a whole lot of different disciplines. So not only in human health, but in agriculture, political sciences and environmental sustainability. Um, and they look to develop global scientific targets for healthy diets and the sustainable food production. Um, so you should all definitely read the report. It's very important. Um, but in the meantime, I can give you a couple of the highlights. Give us the cheat notes. I'll give you some of the cheat notes. There are other cheat notes and there's actually a very nicely designed, you know, um, summary out on the web. But give us, just give us a few bites. Okay, let, let me give you some bites some of what morsels. you should be doing. Because, you know, I mean, the world is a diverse place. Everyone's eating different things. Mm. So um, so to, to, to think about what we should be doing um, in the West, um, it's definitely eating less red meat and less sugar. Um, so in the proposed sustainable and healthy diet that's set out in this report, um, what is proposed is that approximately one third of the calories um, that we intake should be from whole grains and tubers. Tubers. Potatoes. Yeah. Starchy vegetables, right? Mm. Um, protein would come primarily from plant sources. Nuts and seeds and beans. Nuts and, and seeds and legumes. Um, though around... 20 grams of red meat per day would also be included. So you could save up those um, 20 grams and get yourself a 100-gram steak at some point. After but 10 days. No, after, after five, five days. days. Every five days you can have 100 grams of meat. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. fair enough. But also um, a vast increase in the average amount of fruit and vegetables that we consume. So upping our fruit and vegetable intake to 500 grams per day. 500 grams of fruit and veg. Yeah. It doesn't seem like a lot. You don't think so? Well, not. You know, I mean, the current guidelines are, what is it, five five pieces of Five pieces, of, five serves of vegetables and two serves of fruit, which most people don't don't. Most make. people don't manage that. Yeah. I, I, I realise this, but Even vegetarians it just doesn't sound like that, it's yeah. a huge amount. And if, if that's an increase for some people, then that seems like a smart thing to do, I guess. Well, I guess what they're looking at is what people's actual diets are, not what um, not what the health professionals say we should be eating. Oh, okay. right. So um, the health professionals pro- probably saying we should be eating 500 grams, but how that actually translates to what people are eating, you know, is well, a completely different thing. We know, we know from the cues out through the drive-through window that they're not eating uh, fruit and vegetables. <laughs> not eating fruit and vegetables. Exactly. So on average, the diet would, um, if everyone were to stick to this diet, you know, then it would halve the global consumption of red meat and sugar, um, which would which would um, decrease the amount of carbon emissions, and then we would um, see a lot of health benefits as well. Um, yeah. So that's that's I guess one of the major. One of the major things that's come out of this report. Question. <laughs> yeah. Um, does fish feature in it? Fish does feature in it. Um, one serve of fish per week. Okay. Yep. So I think it's around 200 grams of fish per week. Okay. Yes. Um, chicken is also in there. Um, that's not a fish. No, that's not. But it is a um, it is a type of protein. Okay. Um, an animal-based protein. Do I, mean, I asked about fish because... Often there is dietary recommendations there is to eat like oily fish, you know, for omega threes yep. and stuff like that. But fish are also, you know, there's overfishing of oceans and this kind of thing. So it was to me that balance between health and sustainability. And it's good to see that they, again, they're taking both factors into account. 
Yeah, yeah, indeed. I was um, gonna I was gonna ask too. Do they talk about production methods? So is you know is farmed fish preferable to? I didn't ocean drill down fish? into that amount of detail, but um, considering they do talk. Um, they do talk about a strong and coordinated governance of land and ocean. Right. So um, I imagine in that would, would be a great de- amount of detail in terms of sort of like what sort of fish you should be eating, what sort of fish we should be eating, what sort of policies should be in place, how we should be farming the fish, what that sort of looks like, how we should be feeding those farmed fish. Mm. Yep, and all, and all that, that sort of stuff. Um, some of the other things that they talked about um, – Obviously, fresh fruit and vegetables, it's a lot easier for people in the West to access them, but for low-income countries um, to have access to fresh and healthy produce, we need to um, strengthen infrastructure in rural farming communities with urban centres. And this will go a long way to helping people in rural um, developing countries have access to fresh and healthy produce um, and then also combat something that's a real issue, which is waste associated with transportation so if you look at how food travels throughout the supply chain almost one third of all food produced worldwide is being wasted through transportation so given this um then focus should be on infrastructure and then you can reduce waste and then also give people access to those sorts of Um, those sorts of fresh foods as well. Um, Which brings me to the next point um, about food loss and waste. So that's a really, that's a really big point when you're thinking about sustainability and um, emissions. Um, So not only does food loss need to be halved at the production site, but also um, food waste at the consumption site. Um, side as well so implementing technological solutions along the food supply chain um, public policies and more resources need to be directed towards developing more nutritious and um, higher yielding and more resilient crops that can withstand temperature fluctuations extreme weather and pests Um, and then whatever new seeds are developed need to be made affordable to farmers worldwide Um, you know, whether they're in arid regions, um, you know, and they can get access to drought tolerant crops um, or high protein, um, high protein uh, crops and um, things that are going to protect their soil and also preserve the moisture. Um, And then lastly, uh, there's a really strong focus on, yeah, coordinating um, how we use our land. So, um, there's a really big focus on not expanding the agricultural land that we already have in use. So how are we going it? Like that's going to be a huge challenge um, using the existing agricultural land to feed humanity um, and making sure we've got this sort of zero expansion policy of um, so the natural ecosystems and the species rich forests that we do have um, are being protected and that we're finding new ways to create Foods that are going to be high nutritional value from um, the lands that we already have. So it's a pretty big task um, and this report is very detailed and I would definitely encourage everyone to go and have a look because, you know, I'm just sort of like scraping the surface of what is out there. Um, but, yeah, for more information on how we are going to sustainably feed 10 billion people by 2050 – 
uh, definitely check out the Eat Lancet Commission report and um, we will put it up on the web as well. Lots to chew on. That's all we've got time for on this episode of Lost in Science. Thanks for tuning in and joining us. Lost in Science is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the financial assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. If you want to talk to us, talk back to us, uh, you can get in touch. We have a Gmail account, lostinsight at Gmail. Uh, You can also find us on Twitter and on the Facebook Uh, And if that's not enough lost in science for you, you can always tune in again next week where the team will once again get lost Lost in science. listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.